to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy. My fact is that when Britain declared war in 1914, they accidentally did it in the wrong format and they had to swap the letters, otherwise Britain would not technically be at war. Wow. What kind of format was it? I don't know. I don't know if it was in landscape or in some kind of... (laughs) (laughs) What they declared Uh, with a painting. Or or emojis or something. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, But this is from an article in the Times Literary Supplement, which is great, by the way, highly recommended. Um, And there was a British diplomat called Harold Nicholson who was working at the Foreign office and one day he was told we've declared war on germany but we screwed it up <laughs> and we sent the letter which doesn't quite say the right phrase i think was... i think what it was was they thought that germany had declared war mm. um, because they intercepted some um thing over the radio waves yeah. but actually germany hadn't declared war and so oh. the letter said we accept your declaration of war but right. what they actually wanted to say was we declare war on you uh. Uh. Because Britain was obliged to go to the defence of Belgium and Germany had violated Belgian territory. And so, yeah, so... That's a sort of um, you-can't-fire-me-I-quit situation, yes. isn't yeah, it? It's very much like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like getting a text message saying, I'm having an affair too. And then you have to withdraw that. And just say... And just say, I'm having no, an affair. It's like getting the text message <laughs> saying, I'm having an affair. And then your spouse says, I wasn't having an affair. What are you talking about? Guys, I really think you should do these kind of things face to face. But Nicholson had to go to the German embassy at night. And he went so late in the day that the German ambassador, who was Prince Lichnowsky, he was in his pyjamas in his bedroom. And he had the letter declaring war on a tray by his bed. <laughs> and Nicholson had to do the old switcheroo. Amazing. And he says that um, he didn't notice. The prince didn't notice. He thought it was just a social visit to say, well, sorry, we're at war now. <laughs> and well, was this, this was after they'd officially declared war. It was just they were like, oh, we've got a bit of the paperwork wrong. We better swap that. It or was, was that this before? Night. It was it that was night. That evening, wow. yeah. Okay. It was the, so what had happened was um, Britain had given a, an ultimatum to Germany saying, if you don't get out of Belgium, we're going to declare war. And then it got to the evening and they thought Germany had declared war, but they hadn't. And then when it got to midnight, that was our ultimatum had kind of hit then. It was actually 11 p.m. 11 p.m., sorry. <laughs> it's very important. You see, if I was in charge, we'd never go to war, would we? (laughs) But poor old Lishnovsky was so upset, wasn't he? So Mm. he was the ambassador. And I always think ambassadors must have such a difficult job in war because they're friends with everyone in the country they're in. So he was mates with all the Brits. Um, He was very good friends with Asquith and his wife, Margot Asquith. So Margot, Asquith's wife, actually went to visit Lishnovsky about an hour or two before war was properly declared and just went to comfort him and say, sorry this is rough isn't it and he was yeah. sobbing saying it's all over and he knew Nicholson as well Did, so, yeah, I yeah. Guess he would. Um, because when Nicholson went to visit him he was in his night clothes mm. the last thing he said to him was give my best regards to your father I shall not in all probability see him before my departure yeah oh. and they hated the Germans really so Who did the, the German ambassadors ambassador? yeah so the ambassador's wife 
said to Margot Asquith on just the 2nd of August, so two days before we went to war, um, to think that we should bring such sorrows to an innocent and happy people. I've always hated and loathed our Kaiser. Have I not said so a thousand times? He and his friends are all brutes. Wow. So they were not, not pleased about it. No, and yeah. I suppose if you are an ambassador, you're going to have a more rounded worldview, aren't you? Yeah. Mm. You know, probably. I don't know. Yeah. I've yeah. never been one. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Nicholson, I'm oh, sorry, just on Nicholson, uh, then he later went on, people might have heard of him because he later went on to marry writer Vita Sackville West. Oh, really? Uh, oh. In a kind of marriage of convenience because I think he was gay and she was a lesbian or they were maybe both bisexual, um, but they kind of got married so that she could inherit her ancestral home of Sissinghurst. Okay, oh. we're sure it wasn't a phrasing mistake and he didn't mean to say, <laughs> would you mind buying some milk? <laughs> <laughs> he accidentally wrote, would you marry me? Had to it Sorry, I meant to say I don't. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard of her. Is she a big author? She's, yeah. she's a poet. She's, and a, right. yeah. she's quite famous. Cool. I, I mostly know her because she has a weird name. Mm. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. It kind of sticks in your head, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so we, George V also sort of, lots of people declare war officially. George V is one of the people who sort of announced to the nation that we were at war. And his diary is very interesting because it's so matter of fact. So his diary on that night, uh, he wrote it just before he went to sleep. And he, it was a short entry. He said, I held a council at 10.45 in the evening to declare war with Germany. It is a terrible catastrophe, but it is not our fault. And then he said... The crowds were all cheering. Uh, when they heard war had been declared, the cheering was even more terrific. Went to bed at midnight. And that's just, that's what that. That's the start of the First World wow. War for you. Yeah, there were loads of, because they had a speech in Parliament, didn't they? Uh, was it Grey or someone did a speech yeah. in Parliament? And everyone was outside kind of expecting that war was going to be declared. Wow. Uh, and there was a mob in London who attacked the German embassy. And at the same time, there was a mob in Germany that attacked the British embassy in Berlin. Really? Throwing stones. Oh. That is kind of a microcosm of the next four years. Yes. <laughs> There's someone else who we know where they were when war broke out, mm. and it's Adolf Hitler. And oh, the yeah. interesting thing is we know because there was a photograph taken of this huge crowd in Munich at a place called the Odeon Platz, and they're all uh, celebrating as lots of people, lots of crowds all over Europe celebrated the outbreak of war. They thought it was a good thing. And um, you can see, if you zoom in, Hitler in the crowd with a really big droopy moustache. <laughs> really? He, well, yeah, but this is the crazy thing. So the photo was taken by a photographer who later became Hitler's official photographer. And in one of the very early bits of Nazi propaganda, Hitler, they tracked down this photo. They saw You saw Hitler in the crowd and they retouched his moustache to turn it into the oh, toothbrush moustache really? that Hitler later adopted. Oh, if only we all had photographers to retouch photos from our youths. Our parents would be so thrilled. Well, apart from he kind of retouches them all to make it look like he did when he was older. It's true. It's, right. like, yeah. give, it's like giving yourself a mullet in a photo from the 80s. Yeah. It's, it's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you'd, you're always ashamed of how you dress when you were younger, whether it's a weird bushy moustache or you've got your stupid long hair from the 70s. No, sorry, it's not like giving yourself no. a mullet, is no, it? No, no, it's, it's, like, it's the opposite. It's the opposite, yeah. It's taking away the mullet. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. the, the mullet's embarrassing it's as a yeah. thick moustache. It's like the Pope going back to his baby photos and putting a big hat on them all. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. <laughs> Uh, did you read that one of the other amazing pieces of protocol they had to go through that day when uh, Britain declared war was that 
the was it the foreign office sent out loads of telegrams to all the consulates around the world that we were vaguely affiliated with warning them we're about to go to war so this is sort of in the afternoon going on early evening all these telegrams were sent out and the foreign office clerks had to send them out and all they had to do was fill in a pre-written telegram that said just to warn you britain is going to war with blank <laughs> and they just wrote the word germany because they'd had them pre-written for about 10 years it's no. so good that, isn't it? <laughs> they just knew that they were going to go to war eventually it's like you know when you are a kid and you have birthday invites mm. and it says you are invited to blank's party oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah like it's exactly like that isn't it <laughs> it is do you think some were accidentally they forgot to fill them in and countries were just left guessing <laughs> I, for a, I would have for a laugh put a different country in just one telegram <laughs> just so one british territory overseas thinks we're at war with switzerland or something Yes. Yeah. Or do you think they sent it to Germany and it just said you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Real privilege. The most senior clerk got to do the you one. <laughs> um, I was uh, just reading generally about what happened as soon as war was declared. And obviously a lot of soldiers had to be conscripted. And uh, that led me into just looking into conscription. And I read about this thing, which I'd not heard of. I don't know if you guys have, but the PALS Battalion. Have you heard of that? Mm. This was so obviously they had to work out what was the best way to get people sort of passionate about joining the war. And one of the ideas was the idea that if you signed up with a friend of yours, there was a promise that you would both be in the same battalion. So professional golfers were known to sign up with each other. There was the Grimsby Chums, and that was former schoolboys from Winteringham Secondary School in Brimsby. Grimsby. It's a terrible idea, actually, because if you're going to go to war and have to see all these people around you dropping dead, I'd rather they weren't all my mates. I know, I guess uh, it's a morale thing, though, up until that point. Well, yeah. the idea is that you might fight harder if it's mm. to save your friends, I think. Yes, yeah. There was... Um, in Thebes they had a secret band of um, an army where they were all lovers, um, all gay lovers and so they would all be in this army together and they would all When was fighting. this? This is in... in Thebes in the Spartan in a- yeah. Wow, really? This is really? not a modern innovation no. <laughs> <laughs> Although actually the war between Sparta and Athens did go on until 1996 What? No, <laughs> what? come on now <laughs> It was one of those ones, you know, where they don't sign the peace yeah. agreement Yeah. Uh, and so in 1986 they signed a symbolic agreement that Sparta and Athens <laughs> were no longer at war, even though that they'd both been part of modern day Greece for about a thousand years <laughs> um, so I think we may have briefly mentioned the Berwick upon Tweed thing before mm. so there's this the town of Berwick on Tweed they mistakenly believed that they were at war with Russia for about 150 years after the end of the Crimean War mm. so that ended 1856 and it's because there was this really complicated history with Berwick upon Tweed because it's right on the border of England and Scotland and it went it changed hands about 13 times and there was a 1502 agreement between England and Scotland which said that Berwick upon Tweed is of but not within the Kingdom of England. Actually, it had been sorted out in 1746. It was all fine. If you didn't mention Berwick upon Tweed, there was no problem. It was still included. <laughs> but the town, no one really knew that. It didn't mm. sort of get through. So people kept naming it in official documents mm. as a kind of just in case. They couldn't remember mm. whether it was included. <laughs> so, so people thought that they had been left out and that they were still at war with Russia. Um, and this is the really sweet thing. In 2006, there was a kind of exhibition about this in the town, about this interesting, you know, kink of history. And it was Beric's War with Russia weekend. And apparently, <laughs> as part of it, they had a what if reenactment, which I think is the best. Surely a, that, uh, the what if involves Beric being flattened within 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Russia going about his business. <laughs> 
Um, I was just looking a little bit at the declaration of the Second World War, mm-hmm. and the Second World War was kind of declared by two Nevilles. So it was <laughs> Gary obviously... and Phil, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Gary and Phil, no. It was obviously, there was Chamberlain, but then there was also Neville Henderson. He was the British ambassador in Germany, so it was his job to go and actually tell the Germans that we were at war. But it might have been because of a mistake, again, a little bit like this error in 1914. So it was August the 30th in 1939, and Henderson went and met Ribbentrop, who was their Hitler's foreign secretary. And apparently things got really tense. You know, Henderson was saying, please stop invading all these countries. Please don't do the Poland thing. And they, it came really close to blows. They almost started punching each other. Wow. And then Ribbentrop said, OK, we're going to give you our last offer. We're going to give Poland the last offer. And Britain was obviously basically represented Poland at this point. And so Ribbentrop read over the last offer but Henderson's really pissed off with Ribbentrop at this point so he didn't really listen and Ribbentrop read over it really really fast sped through it apparently and then Henderson went okay fine give me the copy and uh, Ribbentrop said no not going to give you the copy hope you're paying attention and so Henderson didn't know what had just happened didn't really know what the offer was it was kind of deliberately convoluted and said and then Ribbentrop said you got to respond by midnight and that this confused everything and within a couple of days there was war Wow. Yeah, so always pay attention. Yeah. Look, I, don't you, think, I, can... I don't think that's a message. <laughs> so, who was Ribbentrop? <laughs> <laughs> I could see you all switch off then, and we've gone to war. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that there's a bacterium that can freeze water just by touching it. And these bacteria are used to make artificial snow in ski resorts. That's crazy. It's so amazing. Cool. So how fast, can, if I dropped one of these bacteria into my glass of water, is it frozen straight away? No. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it tends to do it with plants. It goes into the, into the plant cells and it freezes the water in the plant cells so it can access the nutrients inside the plants. Uh, But the way that it does it is it has a protein on the outside of the bacterium and they can shift the molecules around of the water uh, and the water then orders in, like kind of gets into a lattice, into a template, which is what ice is really. And then it can also remove heat from the water in the same way that a refrigerator removes heat from the inside of it. Uh, So it gets hotter, but it removes heat from from the water itself to make it into ice. And the plants don't like that, presumably. The plants do not like being killed, no. No. Um, Because actually any frost damage that you see is usually down to this bacterium. Really? Yeah, so if you have a plant at, say, minus four degrees, minus three or four degrees, it should be fine because the water inside it can super cool. It won't turn to ice until a little bit later than that. But if it has this bacterium in it, then the bacteria will turn the water, which would have been liquid, into ice and it can kill the plants. Bastard. So, bastard. <laughs> bastard. What, what I the find, roses are saying. Sorry. What I find amazing is that this is being used in artificial snowmaking, as in you must have to have so many hundreds and hundreds of millions and billions of these bacteria to make yeah. lots of artificial snow. Yeah. How do you breed? But I ba- guess they just they just reproduce. Breed. They that's breed the thing so with bacteria. Quick. You just yeah. leave one alone for twenty hours and well, then you yeah, come yeah, back. That's the thing. I yeah. read a single cell bacteria in a twelve-hour period. They can produce seventy billion bacteria from a single cell bacteria That's it's how good quick they're so that small is. isn't it because if they were like human size <laughs> overcrowding of the world would have happened in a second it's true yeah. definitely and that 
think of all those generations, that's one great, 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 great grandfather who has 70 billion oh, children. Oh, God, who Imagine do you think presence. you are as a yeah. t- <laughs> bacteria? <laughs> the thing is, with these guys in particular who can turn this water into ice, they can do it even after they're dead. Wow. So the company uh, Snowmax, who make this artificial snow, they get dead bacteria because the bacteria still have the protein on their outside, which can make the water turn into ice, even though they're not alive anymore. Wow. <sighs> it's not a great PR line, though, is it? Using the dead corpses of, <laughs> of billions of bacteria. <laughs> well, the thing is, wow. real rain probably has these guys in it as well. So uh-huh. um, re- most real rain or snow has to have um, some kind of nucleus, which the water goes around. And they think that, generally speaking, it's this particular bacteria that's most common in rain around the world. Really? Amazing. What? So yeah. it's because all rain starts sort of frozen up there, but then how, is the bacteria not able to freeze it as well once it's in rain form down with us? Uh, yes, because it'll be too warm at that stage. The too bacteria warm. only really works around the zero mark Got when it. things are kind of freezing anyway. But you know, and that's why you don't get many ski slopes in places like Barbados. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The yeah. bacteria can't do it in the heat. Have you guys heard of the British Gut Project? No, no. So I was looking at microbiomes and how mm. there's a theory that your bacteria in your stomach can affect your mood. So they've done experiments on mice where mice with no microbes in them got twice as stressed when scientists freaked them out as normal mice did with normal microbiomes. So there's right. a, there's a theory there. But the British Gut Project is this um, enterprise which is trying to map the whole gut microbiome of the British population, and they're basically crowdsourcing poo. Oh. In the post. Oh. In the post? Yeah. But the, you do have to pay. You can't just send them poo in the post. So they... It's, it's How much do I have to pay to put poo in the post? It's uh, 75 quid. Really? But they are trying to build up this whole picture of the nation's microbiome health. They've do, they, It's been right. done tried in America already. And it's really interesting seeing a whole population's general health. Um, so they're trying to sequence the DNA. So they will send you a breakdown of your own DNA. But okay. it's not going to be a good... Uh, method of finding out the population's health because you're only going to get the weirdos who are willing to shit in an envelope and send it to a scientist. (laughs) Can I also say, if you're upset with the British Gut Project, how do you show your displeasure? Because you can't send it in the post. You send them an empty sample pot. Wow. It's weird sending them your poo, though, because I half imagine getting a thing back going, you're 50% corn. You know, just anything that's... I don't think that's how sequencing DNA works. You know when they say that humans and cons share like 75% of their DNA is like these guys yeah <laughs> wow uh, in China it's smoggy I read and um, there are bacteria that live on the smog so they live wow. inside the smog and they can eat the smog and that sounds like quite cool doesn't it because maybe it gets rid of the yeah, smog yeah. Uh, but unfortunately they fart out even worse chemicals <laughs> <laughs> So you're just replacing one pollutant with another. Do we not have another kind of bacteria that can eat the worst chemicals? I get the feeling that they'll fart something even worse yeah. after that. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Chizinski. My fact is that women who were applying to be Qing Dynasty concubines had to spend a night sleeping with the emperor's mother first so that she could check they didn't snore. 
Uh, yeah, this is so the selection process to be a concubine was so arduous, and there were so many steps to it. This is actually in this amazing thing that's on the South. It's been published by the South China Morning Post, but it's in collaboration with the Forbidden Palace Museum. And I would so recommend it. They've done a series of chapters detailing life in the Forbidden City. And this is about yeah. So there were these concubines who lived in the Forbidden City with the emperor, and to become one, you had to well, first of all. Every, every single Manchu woman in the kingdom had to apply to become a concubine. So you weren't allowed to marry until you'd applied to check the emperor didn't want to marry you. Uh, this was all girls between 13 and 16. And they did this sort of call out every three years. And then they'd come and God knows how they whittled it down from that many. But they whittled it down to about 100 who would be monitored really, really carefully by all these females already in the Forbidden City. So for things like um, weird skin abnormalities, (laughs) body odour. They were really strict on body odour and anything else that might be wrong with them. And then they were whittled down to finalists who are kind of taught like a finishing school how to behave. It's very much like the X Factor, isn't it? It It's so X Factor. Yeah. Although they don't do the body odour thing. (laughs) Spend a night sleeping next to Simon Carroll. (laughs) (laughs) But I know how they whittled it down. This was on. It was. It was in that brilliant piece. Um, So in the Ming Dynasty, which was the one just before. Yes, we've got records of how they whittled it down. So they picked five thousand young women, and then they eliminated a thousand on the first day for being too short or tall or fat or thin. And the second day, they got rid of another two thousand based on their voices and general manner. You've got 2,000 left. Well, that is actually like X Factor, isn't it, on your voice? Yeah, it's true. Um, Third day, they got rid of another 1,000 because their hands or feet weren't right. I haven't what? seen I haven't seen the X Factor, but <laughs> no. I don't think that's that phases in that. So you've got a thousand left. Yeah, foot, oh, in, foot inspection was a massive thing. Yeah, back then. Uh, feet, feet in China. Were so important. Yeah. yeah. Then you've got a thousand left, and then you have gynecological examinations, which apparently get rid of another 700. Wow. I do not know how. I've got to wow. say, I kind of at this stage wish I'd been kicked out for being too tall, short, <laughs> fat, yeah. thin. And then you have a month of testing for the remaining 300. Yeah. But in that right. final month, is it right that they get taught sort of incredible skills that they might not have learnt painting, reading, mm. walking. Yeah, it's very much my walking. Fair, walking, walking. <laughs> One of those skills that you'd never learn unless you're in the palace. You walk back into your village, you've changed. <laughs> Everyone else still rolling around down the road. <laughs> oh, she thinks she's so off herself. Um, this was, that was, there was a book that was saying they were taught to have, they had to have dainty feet and they were taught to have a titillating walk. Yeah. Had to be titillating. Um, but yeah, and sleeping next to the mother. The mother was the final hurdle you had to cross, and she was the most senior woman. <laughs> Boss level. Yeah. How, ma- how many do you know got through to that final phase? Uh, I think the finalists, there were 10, I think, or maybe there were five at that point, but okay. we were down to a manageable number. Because the mother doesn't have, you know, she's the, there's only one emperor's mum, so she can't spend yeah. all her time. No. Unless she sleeps with them all at the same time, but then how do you know who's snoring? <laughs> true. Yeah. Oh, yes. You yeah. just blame it on the person next to you. And it was to check for things like sleepwalking or sleep talking or body odours again. She had to be very careful with. And then you passed. But a lot of girls didn't want to pass, obviously, because it meant that you had to abandon your village and your family and all your friends and live forever in this massive forbidden city with this creepy old man. So, mm. yeah. He, he might not come and see you, though, because weren't there lots of concubines? Yeah. Mm. Some of them had tons, didn't they? Mm. I think, well, you, yeah, you had different levels. You had your base level concubine, and then it went to higher rankings all the way up to you're the empress. Boss level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there were about 20,000 by the Qing Dynasty. 20,000 yeah. concubines. Concubines, consorts, um, yeah 
Blimey. Wait yeah. a minute. So, 20,000 women in the Forbidden 20, City. 20,000 women. I'm just trying to work out <laughs> the timings of this. What? How? How? Like, let's say. How, oh, how many? How, how many you can have sex shagging? with in that amount of time? God, that's <laughs> yeah. You know, to be frank. Well, they did have they did have problems with that. There was one emperor called Emperor Wu, not part of the Qing, but he had five thousand uh, women, uh, too many to either remember who he actually wanted to sleep with, but he knew that they were all very pretty. So what he used to do was go around in a cart that was carried by goats, and when the goats got tired, wherever they parked, that's who he went and had sex with that <laughs> night. Yeah, I, that's surely not... that's an easier way to remember who you fancy. <laughs> he fancied them all. I think that's the, the idea. Is the concubines? He just thought they're all very beautiful. So wherever the goats stop, uh, that's where I'll get off. And wow. some of the concubines who Literally. wanted, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and many of the concubines actually did want to have relations with yeah, him because maybe it brought you'd have her... children and you they would become emperors. Exactly. Maybe. So what they used to do was leave little bits of treats outside the door for, for the, the goats. goats. Yeah, wow. <laughs> to trick them into stopping. Um, wow. <laughs> and then there's other ones who because they wanted to make sure that there was um, not too much jealousy amongst the concubines mm. because if you slept with one of the concubines that raised her level and suddenly your surrounding concubines might get a bit too jealous mm. um, and fights break out and so on um, they used to have a rotation calendar that was done for certain emperors so they would make sure that you never slept with the same concubine in the same week or something like that you know and we Share have written out. records of that. They... Well, I, so I read on this website, um, Anna, that you were talking about, that in the 10th century, calendars were used to keep track of the sex life rather than of day-to-day yes. -day life. It was so closely monitored. Is that yeah. right? That can't be... You're not saying, I'll meet you on the 29th of the Emperor's Shagging Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we should bring it back with our royal family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had, there was a branch of the imperial government that was set up in the 1670s called uh, the Office of Respectful Service. And this was to formalise that, really, and make sure sec secretaries were installed to keep tabs on the sexual activities. And so every single concubine that visited the bedroom, they'd have to take note of it. They'd have to find out what actually happened in there. Because, again, the ranking system, you have what to really monitor What happened in there? <laughs> I found this interesting. Apparently, there was only one monogamous uh, Chinese emperor who was called Hong Zhi. And he was only monogamous because he was extremely close to his mother. And then his mother was murdered by a concubine. So oh. that rather put him off the idea of concubinage. Yeah. Wow. Except the one, presumably. Oh. I think he took a wife. He took a wife. Yeah. Oh. Took a wife. They could do that sometimes, couldn't they, concubines? Yeah. There was um, an emperor called Jia Jing, uh, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, but um, 18 of his concubines kind of ganged up on him and tried to kill him. They drove hairpins into his crotch Whoa. and they wrapped a silk cord around his neck and tried to strangle him. Wow. Um, but they... <laughs> the guy with the clipboard in the corner saying, I don't know what I record this as. <laughs> 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 heavy, heavy, heavy petting? <laughs> well, um, the Empress, Empress Fang, then had all the conspirators killed. Uh, they were all okay. executed. Uh, but Jia Jing, um, he decided to move out of the Imperial Palace and became a Taoist magician who um, spent his whole life having sex with virgins and drinking magic potions made from bodily fluids. Wow. So it affected him quite badly. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, and that counts as being a magician? Because um, I'd be disappointed if I went to a magic show and all he did was drink blood and urine and have sex with virgins. <laughs> Would you? You've clearly never been to a David Blaine show. <laughs> um, I think the magic was other stuff. Right. Well. Oh, did he? 
Did he stay as emperor? He did, but basically he just ignored all of his duties that he was wow. supposed to do as emperor okay. and did all this magic and, and <laughs> stuff. It's so said. annoying if the emperor's got a magic show he's constantly <laughs> trying to show you another trick. It's like, we are at war with four separate groups of people. Can we do have some decisions, please? <laughs> Ooh, pick a card. <laughs> uh, just on eunuchs, so because they were the other group of people that were allowed in the Forbidden City, you couldn't have men with their parts because then they might impregnate the women. Um, so there are thousands and thousands of eunuchs and it was actually a good gig because it's the only way you can work really um, close to the emperor and his government. But well, I think there, there, was, know, there was one drawback, wasn't yeah. there? <laughs> the <laughs> application process was uh, yeah, yeah. a bit tedious. I can't imagine if they chop your cock off and then they said, but sorry, you snore. <laughs> <laughs> but the way they did it was they put you on a chair with a hole in the seat. <gasps> oh, oh, really? And then you just whip something underneath it and it's gone. It's, I mean, it was the was it the testicles that were removed? It was the, it was the whole, well. the whole no. lot. Yes, yeah. You've got to get rid of all yeah. of it. Um, and I think we've said they used to then have to carry them around in a pouch we've mentioned before. Which they were proud of. The last eunuch of China um, fell out with his family uh, when they threw his genitals away. The eunuch um, never spoke to his family again off the back I think of that's fair enough. I would be so annoyed if my mum threw away a body part of mine. Yes. I if it's on or off. When you go back to visit your parents and they've like changed your bedroom and they turned it into a study or something that's yeah. really upsetting <laughs> yeah it's true <laughs> but the, so the reason they threw it away is because during the cultural revolution there was a whole thing about you need to discard anything that was seen as old society and if you no, had anything that was old society right. yeah you put your whole family at risk because you owned something from the so they saw his his genitals as part of that oh tradition yeah so they threw it away uh, that's no, the amazing that's... thing about his life he this guy Sun Yao Ting the last eunuch he died in 1996 yeah, yeah. Wow. this is really recent history. Yeah. Well, concubinage, I don't know how you pronounce that word, but concubinage, concubinage was only banned in Hong Kong in 1972. Wow. Yeah. And it's still not uncommon, I think. It's not as frowned upon to have lots of mistresses in lots of parts of China. And there's a saying in China, well, someone who was Chinese on the internet said, we've got a popular saying, which explains why Chinese men need multiple women, but women are expected to just have one man. And it goes, one teapot is usually accompanied by four cups, but have you ever seen one cup with four teapots? Hmm. Sounds similar to something I have seen on the internet, but... <laughs> <laughs> Two concubines, one cup. Is that yeah. what you're saying? <laughs> Completely different, but equally profound meaning yeah. to that. Concubinging sounds like a old, old Netflix kind of. It's not concubinging. Concubinage well, just sounds like you're chucking them out. Oh well, there is a good argument for concubinging because there's a new TV show in China which is about Yanxi Palace and it's hugely popular. It's the most Googled TV show of the year 2018, despite the fact that Google is largely banned in China. That's how hugely popular wow. it is all across Asia, lots of other countries as well. It's been streamed 15 billion times and it's about the rivalry between concubines in the Forbidden City. It's, so concubinging is actually a perfect word for watching this show a lot. 15 billion, that means everyone on Earth, on average, has watched it twice. I know. <laughs> That's, yeah. I'm just saying it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> but I guess there are a billion Well, I haven't seen it, so someone's watched what? it at least three times. Yeah. I've yeah. watched it two million times. So <laughs> I think there are just a billion people in Asia. A billion people in China, aren't there? Of yeah, 1.3. Yeah. yeah. And more outside that. But we're still within Asia. Yeah. 
Asia's population is very high I compared know. to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Is it four, I shouldn't have been surprised that 15 billion. It's a lot. It's four, I, I, get, I mean, how many people live in Asia? Is it about 4 billion? It's a very large number. Whole of Asia. Whole of Asia. Including right. India. Oh, no. Cheating. No, I'm including India. All oh, right, then five. <laughs> yeah, 1.3 billion in China, 1.3 yeah. billion in India. Two probably billion. about 100 million in Bangladesh or something. Right. Indonesia. It's another biggie. But they've still all seen it more than twice. That's the amazing <laughs> thing. Even all of these people, you know. How do they get anything done? Why is China so productive if they're all constantly watching this thing? <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that some meteors skim off the Earth as if they were a stone skimming across the waters. That's very good. But who is throwing them? Yes, good question. That's so profound. I know, I've made that a bit more poetic, and probably (laughs) scientists listening are thinking, you dick, that's not what they do. So, But they don't skim off the Earth if you count the Earth as the ground that we walk on, do they? No, exactly. That would be incredible. (laughs) That would be the best fact we've ever done (laughs) if no one knew that. What this is, is... um, (laughs) This is meteors... Imagine if the meteor that came to kill the dinosaurs just went... (laughs) Straight back into space. Extraordinary. <laughs> now, what this is is we obviously um, we have an atmosphere, and the atmosphere is what burns up. When we call a meteor a meteorite, it's because it goes through a layer of the atmosphere. It's very cold, burns it up, and then that lands on the Earth. Sometimes, when a meteor comes into the Earth's atmosphere, it's on such an angle, almost a parallel angle to the Earth's atmosphere, that it just bounces off. They're called earth grazers. They don't make it down further. They literally get a lift, a boost off the atmosphere, pushing it back up, sometimes slowing its speed, but it makes it back out and just hurdles back into space. Imagine if you could skim it off the earth and then off Mars and then off the (laughs) Earth. Wouldn't that be extraordinary? But yeah, there's, there's, we've only, we know that it happens a lot, and a lot of people have seen it with the naked eye, but we haven't actually recorded too many of these. Um, I believe in 2006 was only the fourth time that we've ever caught on camera what is known as the earth grazers, the ones that come in and skim off So the what atmosphere. does it look when you see it with the, with the naked eye? Does it look like a meteor, but it just doesn't yeah, burn yeah. up? It lo- no, it does burn up. So it, it, you see the flaming meteorites, as it were, yeah. coming in, but because of the angle, it suddenly just takes a turn and heads off. But do, do you see it take a turn then? the naked eye well, i guess what you see is the flame go out you cool. just see you do, yeah you see it streaking across the sky yeah and then okay. kind so of what, finishing is it right to say then that it comes in and it goes very slightly into the earth's atmosphere and then bounces out again so when it's in the earth's atmosphere that's when it's burning up and that's yes. what you see but then it disappears exactly, exactly. Yeah. so in um 2006 there was one uh it was just it was a bright fireball is what you would have seen in the sky and this was seen over japan um and it made it uh to 55 miles from the earth's surface wow so that it gets really close and in. then it just looked down and thought no yeah, <laughs> all right, mate. these guys look lame yeah so it was it was there for 35 seconds that so you could wow. see it and um yeah so and then it just disappears back out into back into space cool. and in the distance is crazy this is actually um, related to that, although not about meteors, but with spaceships, that same effect is a major concern they have when bringing spaceships back to Earth. So one of the hardest things if you're controlling a spaceship is re-entering because you have to get the angle at which you re-enter completely mm. spot on. And if you go at too sharp an angle, then you're going too fast and there's too much friction and then you burn up. But if you're going at too shallow an angle, if it is really shallow, then again, there's this risk because the Earth is a sphere that you'll sort of skim across the 
atmosphere, uh, but then come back and off miss. it. miss. And miss it. Yeah. Just miss the earth. You'd have thought it's a big enough target. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the biggest problems with Apollo 13 as they came around from the other side of the moon was on top of everything else is that because their instruments were down, that exact thing was going to happen to them. They were wow. not on the right trajectory to come back into earth. So they had to make a thrust basically with the naked eye with the earth in the distance using that as a target to get themselves back into the right um position otherwise that might have wow. happened to them wow. although i've read a few things and maybe james you know more about this about uh, things wouldn't really bounce off the earth you don't just bounce off into it, the no, distance no, of course not it, yeah so it does, there's no spring that you can hit there's yeah. no solidity in the earth but it's just the fact that the earth is circular so if the earth was flat which some people argue <laughs> here, here we go <laughs> oh, i cut this out every week Helen. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's just that it can't get through those dense layers so it effectively goes straight but because the earth is a curve then it comes straight off it again there's another kind of uh, quite cool earth grazing thing that you can watch um, a few people have been lucky to see it it's called a meteor procession this is really cool so when it does come into that zone of the atmosphere where it starts heating up often a meteor will break into little bits mm. and that's sometimes when we see meteor showers mm. and so on um, it's why you see so many so what will happen is this meteor will come in it'll start breaking up into bits but still enough of it is there to head back out into space and not come down however it will now be about 10 of them that will fly back off into space so you'll just see what looks like because they're all on the same trajectory just like an air show a procession going over you flying over nice. but of flaming balls wow. yeah it's kind of like a meteor shower in a way which always fun and i didn't realize that i think this is going to be one of those things that i it's unbelievable i didn't know but i didn't know that um meteor sh showers happen so regularly like at the same time every single year and that they're all named after the constellation they come from which is nice so you've got orionids or geminids and there are 112 meteor showers every year always happen at the same time um because it's where the earth just intersects with the comet tail at the same time and i guess over many thousands of years then it changes as the comet moves away but yeah, um I didn't, yeah i didn't really know that and the, how do you say is it the perseids or the perseids the perseid meteor shower that people might have seen um that is called i just quite like this origin of what it's called it's usually referred to as the tears of saint lawrence and that mm. is after saint lawrence who is that christian deacon who the romans burnt him in ad 258 and he's the one who you know they put him on a on a barbecue oh, yeah. him on a barbecue and then he apparently according to legend was the guy that said i'm already roasted on one side if you would have me well cooked it is time to turn me on to the other it's yeah. such a good, it's a great story it's so it's lovely so what he actually time... said was ah! yeah. <laughs> yeah. well that's that in latin oh, right. <laughs> i've got a religious uh connection to all this too um so there is an argument it's only an argument and we'll never know the truth but there's an argument that um there's a bit in the bible where saint paul has a conversion he's yeah. on the road to damascus he's called something else before that and then he becomes paul he's and called saul he's called saul and then he and saul okay. becomes paul so there is an argument that he just saw a meteor because yeah. and the account there are, there are several different accounts of it. As he sees a big out. flash, I think. Doesn't exactly, he? he says it's brighter than the sun. Tick, it can be brighter than the sun. Uh, he fell over. Tick, that would happen. Um, Why? Well, there can be a shockwave if a meteor arrives. Oh, tick. Oh, really? Okay. And he also says he heard a big noise. Uh, tick. Okay. And he was blinded, which could happen. Well, but do you know the? But that sorry, it also could be a truck. 
couldn't it? No, I didn't. Bright light, I didn't. tick. <laughs> yeah. Falls over, tick. <laughs> Loud noise, tick. That's true. And it would have been more miraculous in a way to produce a truck at that time. <laughs> hey, just speaking of um, that idea you said of it's not as crazy as a meteorite hitting the Earth's surface itself and bouncing off. Oh, yeah. There is a Mars, 2.5 million years ago, a rock left the surface of Mars, shot out into space. <laughs> then, in 1962, that rock finally landed on Earth as a meteorite yeah. in uh, Nigeria, in Zagami. And it's known as the Zagami meteorite. And wow. sometime soon in the future, that very same bit of meteorite is going to become a meteorite again, except this time back on Mars. Because in 1996, we put some of that meteorite back onto a ship. So we've relaunched it out of our planet. And it's part of the Mars Global Surveyor, which has been going around Mars, but we've lost contact with. So very soon, that satellite is going to go into... It's going to be sucked in by the orbit of Mars. He's going to be so pissed off. Imagine if you're like, I've travelled for 2.5 million years to get away from that place, and you've literally (laughs) just put me straight back. Yeah, that's true. That's incredible, though. That's a very cool fact. Yeah, it's like a cool... Poetic justice, isn't (laughs) it? (laughs) I think it's amazing how these rocks get from one place to another. Like, for instance, when the dinosaur asteroid came down, it comes down, it breaks through the atmosphere... Um, basically pushes all the atmosphere out of the way, causes a vacuum, and so when it hits the ground and loads of rocks come up, they all get sucked into space. Oh, wow. And that, So you could theoretically have some rocks from the dinosaur age that have since made it onto the moon, and there could theoretically be dinosaur fossils, fossils on the moon. <gasps> that was like, the- in the- like, probably not, but Great. theoretically it could be. There was an article about this recently. Yeah, yeah. It was around there's a, a little bit, of, didn't it? There's a piece of rock that they think maybe it's from Earth, but they can't. they need to do more tests. In fact, to- that, that one you're talking about i think they do that like you say they're not sure but they're pretty sure it is from the earth because it was the way you can tell it how it was formed and it was formed in a way that either it's from the earth or they have to change the way that the history of the moon right oh because they think it couldn't have come up to the surface of the moon in the right time so it's it's a bit complicated but yeah but that could be the oldest known earth rock and they found it on the moon Oh, well, the oldest about, moon bit of Earth is It's on about the moon. four billion years old. Yeah. It's wow. incredible. Wow. Except, is it because they they brought it back to Earth? They must have done that. Yeah, it came on Apollo fourteen, I think. What are the odds of bringing back? Did you come back? <laughs> did you come back with some moon samples? <laughs> We've got some bad news. We feel so stupid. <laughs> Probably that spaceship crossed with the Martian one, and the yeah. two rocks waved yeah. at each other, going, "Going back home." Yeah, going back home. Why have we got such strict immigration laws in the universe? We keep on sending foreign yeah. rocks back where they came from. No wonder conspiracy theorists don't think we went. <laughs> the only rocks we've got are fucking from here anyway. <laughs> Can I just wow. say one thing about just about the Tunguska? So the Tunguska event was this massive explosion, obviously in 1908. It was so big, it cast light over the whole world. And at the time, oh, the, wow. night, the night skies glowed so brightly that people in Asia, which we know is heavily populated, so <laughs> probably quite a lot of people... Um, <laughs> People in Asia read their newspapers outdoors at midnight and apparently at least one golfer got in a round at 2.30 in the morning in St Andrews in Scotland. That is amazing. That's you. That's the 1908 version of you, Dave. Does it look like the world's ending here? Wow, I think I could get nine in. So a meteor 
heading towards the Earth. If it's a smallish size, we would call that, let's say, a meteor, meteoroid, meteorite in the Earth. Yeah. If it was bigger, it's an asteroid, right? So right, it's, a, yeah. it's a size thing. Okay. So in movies, whenever we try to prevent an asteroid from hitting the Earth, they always send up some kind of big nuclear device mm. to, to blow it up. And um, there's so many plans going on with NASA and independent bodies of scientists who are trying to work out the best way to stop potential asteroids from hitting the Earth. And um, there's some that want to wrap it in a sail and sort of sail it in a different right. direction. <laughs> um, but one thing I read is they don't ever really want to go for the nuclear option because obviously you blow it up and then suddenly you're sending a lot of rocks mm. to Earth. But mm. what I didn't realize is they're nuclear rocks now. So you've <laughs> made them radioactive. So you would actually just make the whole situation doubly worse yeah. by spreading radiation everywhere where I it hit. I mean, we have this ridiculous policy where we can't bring a strand of hair into space in case <laughs> it infects Mars. And I can't believe they're even considering sending radioactive rocks out into space. Yeah. I think the key would be to push it, wouldn't it? That's the current yeah. best theory. Because there's a there's a guy at NASA who's called the Planetary Protection Officer. He's awesome. a, he's an awesome guy, but he's very low key about the whole thing. So his name is Lindley Johnson, and he's responsible for it basically. But he's only got eight members of staff. So if we get hit by an asteroid, is it his fault? Effectively, um, <laughs> but he he was asked about it. He said, "Do you feel a lot of pressure being the Planetary Protection Officer?" And he said, "It doesn't stress me out that much." Oh. Well, I want someone to be a bit more... Yeah. Actually, <laughs> because who does he answer to if we do get all annihilated by an asteroid? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, he's going to go into the cockroach's office? <laughs> the cockroach will say, well done. <laughs> You've been working for us all this time. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. At James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account at No Such Thing. You can also go to no such thing as a fish.com. We have all of our previous episodes up there. We also have links to our tour. We're going to be touring all around the UK in March. We're going to Ireland as well. Please get some tickets. We hope to see you there. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.